We've been covering a four-part series on work between Josh and I. Uh, I appreciate you allowing me uh, this second opportunity to come and present this fourth part of our class, and we're going to be covering the topic of evangelism in the workplace. So how do we evangelize our coworkers? Uh, and I'm going to try and... Oh, last bit, please. Okay. I'm going to try and divide this into three main parts, parts here. First, we're going we're gonna to go f- quick do a, a brief review from last week, uh, what Josh talked about. And then we're going to talk about evangelism. What is evangelism? Uh, second of all, uh, there, there are three parts to evangelism, and we'll go over each one of those parts. And the third, we'll, if we have time, we'll go through some scenarios and do some exercises. Right? Okay. So does anyone remember what we talked about last week? Don't else shout at once. <laughs> so we had uh, Josh talked about how do we dis- how do we choose our job, correct? Okay. So and he had uh, mainly a calling, gifting, and fulfilling at work. It's like what are we called to do? What are we gifted to do? And what, how are we fulfilled in that work? Um, so, and this includes uh, how do we fit our God-given desire with our God-given ability, and then forward that for His kingdom in order to provide for ourselves and our families financially, and also to forward His kingdom. Uh, I wasn't here last week, but my wife was gracious enough to record it for me, so I was able to listen to it. <laughs> so that's a hat tip for her. <laughs> All right. So yeah, now I want to. So let's let us, for the sake of argument, let's assume that we have our place of employment, that we're all gainfully employed, and we. And regardless of where that might be, whether it be digging ditches or whether it be a, a corporate CEO level. And now we're going to try and figure out how we can evangelize the people and our coworkers in those workplaces. So again, we're going to go over what evangelism is. And then we're going to cover the three parts of evangelism or three stages of evangelism. And then third, we're going to do some scenarios and exercises. Okay, first of all, what is evangelism? Well, it's in the Greek, it is... I'm going to butcher this probably. It's, the Greek is evangelion, which refers to the, which means to bring good news in the lexicon. Literally to bring good news. So by, and uh, in one book, uh, Michael Bates on his book, uh, Mere Evangelism, where'd I put it? Oh, I left him back there. I have f- four different books here that would be good resources that I'd recommend you guys reading. Uh, one of them is uh, Mere Evangelism by Michael Bates, and he defines evangelism as this. He's like, by evangelism, I mean a very precise, rather narrow task, the verbal proclamation of the gospel message. And this coincides with what Paul writes uh, when he says, how then can they call on him uh, when they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, the be- how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So we cannot evangelize without the verbal proclamation of the gospel. In a book that we've reviewed uh, last year with uh, Pastor Aaron, he, he, we went through the gospel precisely by Matthew Bates. Sorry, this one was Matthew Bates. Uh, and he defines the gospel as this. So, Jesus is the Savior King. He pre-existed with God the Father. 
And in accordance with God's promises, Jesus became human in the line of David, died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected on the third day, was seen, and was installed as king at God's right hand, sent the Spirit, and will return to rule. So this is a very simplified, narrow definition of the gospel, because if, if, if you listen to that, if I have to say that, I read that again, and we, we, I could do a, spend an eternity every day on like each part of those phrases, because there's so much depth and so much meaning behind each one of those phrases, and they have to be defined carefully. But that's, it, it's a good synopsis of what we're talking about. Um, so there is value in sharing the gospel directly, uh, but there would be situations uh, but this would be a situation when the gospel, when someone is ready to hear the gospel. So sometimes you run into those situations where someone is like, what, what do you believe and why do you believe? It's like, what, it's like, what is the gospel? Someone just comes up to you and says, what is the gospel? And you give them the gospel and they get saved. It's one of those, I'm ready to be saved moments. And those are fairly rare. I, I've never experienced anything like that. It's norm, normally some level of preparation has to be involved. And... Um, there's a book called, uh, called Mere Evangelism. This is the one I was referring to, Mere Evangelism. And he refers to something called pre-evangelism, and which our hearts have to be prepared to hear the gospel. And so, and each of us might be gifted in, in preparing the soil or, in for, or for harvesting. So there's like, there's preparing, the, there's preparing our hearts and preparing the, the, the person's heart and preparing the soil, and then there's delivering and harvesting the gospel and that person's getting saved. Most of the work is in preparing the soil, preparing the hearts. It's like a farmer. You spend the vast majority of the year of the season preparing the soil, tending the crops in order to bring the harvest at the end of the season. So that's where most of the work and patience comes in. And in this book, Mere Evangelism, this author covers uh, evangelism from C.S. Lewis's perspective, it's like, uh, from how C.S. Lewis prov- did evangelism through his radio and his uh, writing and speaking ministries. And C.S. Lewis was careful and it's like, we have to start at where the, where our, where the person that we're evangelizing at, where they are, where, 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 where do they stand and where do they, what do they believe? So we might be gifted in being more, being more soil preparers, and we might be more gifted in doing and not harvesting a crop. And C.S. Lewis would refer to this as the arguer and the preacher. But we are called to do both, and we are always we are always to be ready with an answer to make disciples. Uh, we can learn from each other on which areas we are weak from. We can learn from those who are really good at arguing and preparing, and we are really and we can learn from those who are really good at just delivering the gospel in a very clear, concise, and gracious way. And we can grow in that obedience t- together. Now, I want to be careful that we don't dive into every conversation uh, like an argument. Uh, and don't hear that arguer and preacher as like, okay, now we have to make everything an argument and debate with everyone and try and defend the gospel. And <clears throat> there's space for that, but in our current m- modern context where everything is so, there's so much tension and there's so much conflict, it's far more effective to be listening, to argue through listening graciously and asking good questions. There's a, a good book that the men of us are going, 
the men's group are going through called Side by Side. And we learn how to develop and grow relationships and ask good questions and learn from each other and grow and, and deepen our relationships. <clears throat> so in order to uh, prepare, it's, in, in seeking to getting to know people, uh, we'll be more effective in preparing the, har the hearts of them, again, through careful, gracious listening and thoughtful questions and finding areas of agreement and commonality. Uh, while when hearing their answers, uh, we want to compare, uh, compare them as much as possible with what is plausible, possible, and likely based on the evidence. So if, if they're speaking something about their worldview, you ask them a question, you ask them a question, and they give their answer, you kind of want to like, okay, think, think through it, and like this, I can see where you would say this, but this doesn't make sense to me. So like, can you explain this more for me, please? How do you relate this? How does this make sense with, how does this thing that you said make sense with this evidence? So then we can understand more of where they're coming from and more of uh, where they're, uh, why they believe what they believe. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so first we wanna cover a bit, go, I'm now gonna go a little bit deeper into pre-evangelism. And so if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, he was a very strong atheist before he became a Christian. Uh, but he became a Protestant believer through years of a, very, of his, of a faithful witness of his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, who is author of Lord of the Rings. Um, as with Lewis, the stage of preparing the soil can take years or decades. So don't be discouraged if you don't see fruit right away. It can take years and decades and decades. Our goal is not to see fruit right away or try and push people into accepting the gospel. There's urgency for sure, but we're, our goal is not to try and make, make fruit happen. That's not our job. Our goal and our job is to be faithful to evangelizing the, the word and, and living faithfully in kindness and graciousness toward others. So our goal is to be faithful, faithful farmers, faithful tenders of the, of the field, uh, but the, it's the Lord that brings the harvest and also brings the season for the harvest. So, and because of this, uh, it's like this, this part is probably the most important part of evangelizing. It, it takes the longest and it requires the most consistency, but it is, it is the most important. So what is pre-evangelism? Uh, Michael Newman says, so Randy, excuse me, Randy Newman says uh, this, uh, so he says, quote, by pre-evangelism, I mean a wide variety of conversations and actions that pave the way and build plausibility for the understanding and reception of the gospel, unquote. Unquote again. Sometimes, he says again, sometimes we need to point out to people that they've fashioned broken cisterns that can't hold water before we offer living water. So in some cases, it requires some repairing of those cisterns, and other times it requires some smashing. Whenever we, at least I know from my own life, whenever we encounter a, a worldview that is different from our own, and we feel our own world, worldview breaking down and how we see life, it's a bit of an existential crisis. We're like, well, what, do I, what do I believe now? What is everything, that every, what, every, the way I see the world is like gone, and who am I? What is life? What, <laughs> how do I see myself in the world? And it's a very painful process. So, and that, our, our goal is to help bring people through those areas as they go through that, as we ask them their questions and challenge them on their worldview and 
seek them to bring them to a, an understanding of the gospel. Uh, Jesus modeled this in his use of everyday metaphors that he would guide his listener in his everyday metaphors that his listeners would understand as he guided them to an understanding of the gospel. And the apostle Paul was a master of this, and he even used this at, with he even used Greek poets when he talked with, excuse me, Gentiles and unbelievers. Excuse me, one second. And probably the best example, uh, he, and he teaches that we need to do this in like First Corinthians nine nineteen to twenty two. where he says, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, but to win, the, but to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, but to win those without the law. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by, I may by every possible means save some. So even in trying to find common ground that could relate to his listeners, he, neither he still neither sacrificed any part of the gospel, but maintained the fullness of it. So he didn't emphasize one part or leave other parts out. He always maintained a consistency and a comprehensiveness in declaring the whole entire gospel, and especially in setting up the context in which the gospel takes place. <clears throat> uh, some of you remember, remember, recall from uh, uh, Paul's speech at the Areopagus when he was presenting before the Greeks. Where did he start? He started with their context. It's like the, an unknown God. And then where did he start? He didn't start with Jesus right away. He started in Genesis. He started with the God of creation. John Stott writes this about Paul's address. Quote, uh, the, Areop the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, address reveals the comprehensiveness of Paul's message. He proclaimed God in, the fullne in his fullness as creator, sustainer, ruler, Father and judge. Now, all of this is part of the gospel. All of it. Or at least indispensable background to the gospel, without which the gospel cannot be effectively preached. Many people are rejecting the gospel today, not because they perceive it as false, but they perceive it to be trivial. People are looking for an integrated worldview, which makes sense of all their experience. We learn from Paul that we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God, or the cross without creation, or salvation without judgment. So we must give this comprehensive, uh, this, this com like a comprehensive gospel in the full context of scripture. So even though this statement from Stott was written decades ago, uh, it still applies today. However, and people are still looking for an integrated worldview. However, it, more accurately, they're looking more for a story with which they can orient, to which they can orient their lives. And we have that story in scripture. So we can use that to our advantage and use uh, the, the, the superior story of the Bible and of scripture and of the gospel to bring that orientating story and that integrated experience that they're looking, the integrated worldview that they're looking for. 
So, and why it's superior to admit their, their own personal worldviews or the way that they see the world. So, now, there, there are some barriers to doing this. Uh, first of all, there's, there's some personal barriers that we have to work through before we can evangelize. Um, so, and I know these are true of me as well. It's like, they're probably not as true of you as they are of me. But the first of all is like, there's a, a fear of man. And this can manifest as like, oh boy, if I here at work, you know, it's like, if I, I have an opportunity to speak to this person, but boy, I don't want to lose my reputation. I don't want to be seen as the weird Christian guy. I don't want to be seen as the idiot. Boy, I could lose my job. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be persecuted. It's, it's really inconvenient. So, so there, there's a fear of man element there, but we're, we are called to follow Christ and to follow God and to evangelize on his behalf. And from our lessons on work the last few weeks, we know that, our, that idolizing our work, our, our identity in work, or what work gives us is, is wrong and is sin. And we need to orient our lives around Christ and work for Christ in his kingdom, including evangelizing when we can at work. So some other barriers, personal barriers to evangelizing at work is that we just don't have enough time and it takes too much attention. Someone wants to talk after work, but we have some other um, engagement that we have to run off to or, uh, or, or we're running around we're running around doing something for, for, for or we just had a long had a long day and we're going to we want to go to lunch and we just want to sit down and have a break and someone wants to sit down and, and, and chat um, but we're like oh sorry not today I don't have time but mainly just because we're, we're tired or we're too busy also uh, wealth is also a big barrier to evangelizing in the workplace because if we're going to work to be rich we're pursuing money we're not pursuing God in his kingdom and this is true, and this is very true, and when we see, look at the story of the rich young ruler, and when he says, teacher, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, said, why do you ask what is good? There's only one, there's only one who is good, and if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. And if you remember, this story continues where he says, yep, I've never done anything bad in my life, I've never committed adultery, I've never stole, stolen, I honor my father and my mother, and I I love, my na- and I love my neighbor as myself. I do all these things. It's like, so what do I still lack? And Jesus told me, it's like, if you are perfect, go and sell all your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. So, so when this rich young man heard that, he went away grieving because he cared more about his possessions and his career and his job than he did the Christ and eternal life. So that can be true of us even today. We care more about our wealth, we care more about pursuing riches and comfort and keeping up with the Joneses uh, or att- reaching a certain lifestyle, uh, reaching a, a, a certain American lifestyle than we do caring about God's kingdom. So it was like, let's not waste our time or effort pursuing wealth. So let's pursue, pursue, pursue Christ and funnel all our resources, including our money and our time and our effort, towards the pursuit of his kingdom and towards the pursuit of Christ. Now, secondly, there are, so there, there's two barri- types of barriers. There's a personal barrier, that's, which I just went through, and then there is the barriers for the unbeliever. Okay. And some, the, these, these would be the cracks in the cistern. These would be part of the, the soil that we have to 
the, the, so, the, the soil that we have to till. These are wrong beliefs and wrong perceptions that we, through the Christian worldview and the biblical worldview, that need to be corrected. And first of all, uh, one barrier is they have no sense of sin. And this is what C.S. Lewis experienced back in the day. And he discovered that there was one point where everyone understood what the natural law is. The natural law, the, the law of nature, it's like there's, there's a right and wrong. Everyone kind of had an understanding of what that was, but then he discovered that no one really holds to that anymore. Everyone kind of just does what they want to do. And how much, that, how much more true is that today? Uh, we see one example of this in like 1957 with a movie called uh, An Affair to Remember, which became known as one of the most romantic movies of all time. However, it was about a couple that began a romantic rela relationship despite, uh, on, a on their cruise, despite both of them already being married. So it's, it's a, a story about romanticizing, romanticizing adultery. And so it was, it was praising adultery and, pr and pursuing this fleeting romantic lust versus remaining committed in their marriage. So it's calling, it's an example of calling evil good and good evil. So, and, and today, uh, we, we can, how much more true of that is today is like we can barely imagine the list of things that are, that were, were once called evil that are now praised and encouraged as good. It's like, if, I'm sure if we sat down, sat down and started writing a list of all the things today that we hear on the news and in our culture and in the political climate and in certain communities and uh, uh, parts of our population where, where certain behaviors and, uh, would not be allowed uh, as formerly evil are now praised as good and acceptable. Um, so in order... So to give the gospel to someone who is in this context who thinks good is evil and evil is good, you might as well just give them the gospel in Pentecostal tongues because they're not going to understand it. <laughs> might as well be speaking a different language to them. They're not going to understand what you're talking about. So we have to explain what sin is and what is evil what is good from a biblical, from a biblical context, biblical perspective. A second barrier is that they have some presuppositions about themselves and about God. Some examples uh, might be that, oh, Christianity is bad. It, it, is, it is racist, it, it encouraged it, and allowed for racism. The Bible, the, the Bible is, uh, teaches slavery, it is sexist, it teaches women to be submissive, it, there's, it, it's a cause of war and conflict, there's, all, all Christians are hypocrites, and et cetera, et cetera. So we can begin to fill in these cracks and try and heal these wounds or shift their perspective, uh, their incorrect perspectives on what Christian is uh, by showing the goodness of our Christian teaching. For example, like, like it was from Christianity that slavery was abol abolished, William Wilberforce, through the efforts of the Christian William Wilberforce. And now, uh, so all human, humans are equal in value. That is a Christian doctrine, regardless of ethnicity and sex. Uh, there's, and Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and He does. He's, we are. We seek to provide peace and to offer peace and pursue peace and justice and not war. So there's all these different things we can correct uh, their perception to what Christian, what they think Christianity is, and what it actually is. Uh, a third, uh, uh, another barrier is like they have a distrust of authority. Um, they might be 
may have been harmed by the church or another authority figure in the past. And so they become extremely guarded because they've been extremely terribly hurt by the church. I've, I've run into a number of these people and there usually can be, as soon as we start trying to, as soon as they notice that he's like, are you trying to convert me right now? They, they get really defensive and they're really on edge and they're just like, and it's, it takes a lot of grace and a lot of patience in order to show that you are trustworthy and you, in order to build trust and healing in that person so that those cisterns have to be patched up and healed and their old, and their, um, wrong beliefs of what Christians are or what Christians believe and should believe need to be smashed. So, so um, another barrier is like, oh, we become what we are raised in. So if you're raised in a Christian home, you're probably a Christian. If you're raised in a Muslim home, a Muslim nation, you're probably a Muslim. This is not always true. Um, that the goal should not, the, this, this is an incorrect worldview and yes, there is some truth to it, but the this kind of is, this is a defense of pluralism in a sense. It's like, oh, if we all, we, everyone, we should all just get along regardless of our different beliefs. It's like when we should be seeking truth and pursuing that truth together. It's like, what is actually true? What actually holds the best arguments? And uh, what is the best for humanity? So, all right, so that's, that's pre-evangelism. Our goal is to like heal and build it and change those incorrect presuppositions and those incorrect per perceptions of the world and of their person and of who God is and who Christians are and what Christians believe. The second, uh, as we do that, we want to um, show the gospel and show our credibility and show our, the goodness of the Christianity in our actions. And we do that in a couple different ways here. First, we, we do it by building credibility. Th we build cre credibility through our actions, um, uh, through in integrity and like being a good worker and all these things. I'll cover those in more detail in a moment. But uh, we, we as Christians, as uh, Michael Bates says, need to show a, the glory of God. And he, he says this more specifically. If non, quote, if non-Christians cannot see a shimmer of glory in the midst of our brokenness, a glimmer that shows that the transformation underway is due to God and not to us, then they will likely reject the gospel. So if we do not consistently show that God is working in and through us and we are tr living out the gospel, living and following God and his good and showing his goodness in Christ, and showing the goodness of Christ in his teaching, and there's any, any hypocrisy or false and actions that are not consistent with that teaching, they will instantly reject it and, and call you a hypocrite, and now they have more barriers that we have to tear down and, and rebuild and patch up and try to heal. It could be very harmful. So, first of all, we can, we have, in our workplaces, we need to have integrity. So, stealing, including pay, is wrong. We need to make sure we are, we are have integrity in our workplaces and we work for what we are paid and that we are paid for what we, for, for what we work. Um, and so we, we shouldn't be intentionally misrepresenting information to make ourselves look better or e e even all these different myriad of ways that I, even I myself have wrestled with trying to justify things. I'm like, oh, I need money, oh, I'm poor. I'm like, oh, do I do this or do I not? No, no, I gotta be, gotta try and do the good, gotta try, uh, uh, 
live true and not cheat and not steal from our employers. Uh, we want to be known as trustworthy, trustworthy, uh, reliable, and honest in our workplaces. Um, second, we, we want to be a good worker. We want to work hard and be productive and efficient because nobody likes or respects lazy workers. If, if we want to, if we're lazy or bad workers or we try and take advantage of the system, it harms our testimony and it harms living out the gospel. So second, we want to, in our good work, we want to seek the good of the company and seek the good of our workplace and our coworkers. Uh, one example that I've personally experienced is I, I once had a very a prickly coworker at, when I worked on the ambulance. She was, uh, there, were times when, there were times when everybody, everybody in the, in the office knew not to speak to her. It was just like, oh, yep, just leave her alone. She's just going to go in the back room. She's going to be fine. Just leave her alone. She'll be fine. And, and she'll be fine after a while. She'll come out and then she'll be all right. Um, but she was really difficult to build a relationship with, really difficult. Um, it's, uh, but, but one day she called me out of, out of the blue and told me there was a family emergency that she had and she needed someone to cover her, uh, her ambulance shift for her. Uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I had that shift off. I, I was available, but I didn't want to work. I was tired. It was a night shift. And I, was like, oh. I was like, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. And but after that point, because I had taken shifts and covered shifts from other people before, uh, but after that moment, my relationship with her, I was surprised how drastically it improved, how grateful she was, and I was able to actually carry on conversations with her that I never would have been able to have before. Uh, most of our ambulance rides from the hospital back to the clinic or back to the garage usually was silence. But now that we are actually having some good conversations. So, but we want, we want to build that uh, respect and um, uh, integrity and care uh, for, for the, our, our coworkers in our workplace. Another point is like propriety. So we, we don't want to be accused of slacking in our work due to our attempts, due to, our attempts to evangelize. So sometimes uh, we can, uh, our evangelism can get in the way of doing our job. I'll cover that more later. We can, so even like having conversations, are, we're supposed to be working, and we're but we're having an evangelistic conversation with a coworker. That can be detrimental to our testimony in the workplace. So we need to be shrewd about how we handle those situations at those times. Um, but we, don't want also, we also don't want to create a hostile working environment due to our zeal to see souls saved. So, it's like, so don't let your testifying to Christ ruin your testimony. Uh, for example, uh, when, I work at a, when I work at the clinic, uh, I get a very short time with my patients when I check them in. So I, I essentially, I check patients in for the, doc, for the doctor so that the doctor can see them. I get their height, weight, blood pressure, and have a list of interview questions that I have to go through to check them in and to update their information. And I have a very limited time to rush them through and get them in. But sometimes when they come into the op, when they come in, they're having a really bad day or a really hard time in their life, and they, I start asking these questions, and it just starts coming out like a flood. And they're just telling all these bad things that are happening, all this, like all these horrible things happening with their family, and they, they start asking me questions and start telling me all these stories, and I'm sitting there trying to 
also be gracious. I have to be very shrewd and very careful about being gracious and helpful and encouraging because I could spend easily, I could spend hours with them going through the scriptures and praying with them and encouraging them. But I don't have time. I have minutes. I have minutes with these patients. And so I have to, uh, on the rare occasions I get time to, in, I, I can like be shrewd about encouraging them, offering a word of encouragement, and maybe even praying for them if, if they say okay, if, if I ask them, they say okay. Um, all at the same time while trying to get them through that set of interview questions as quickly as possible so they have as much time with the doctor as possible. Because if I don't do that, I put the doctor behind and I put other patients behind that the doctor needs to see for the day. And now the whole workplace is upset with me because I'm not doing my job. The, the one patient might be happy I spent some extra time with them, but um, the doctor's not have with me, happy with me and the office isn't happy with me. And I hurt my testimony in that regard as a good worker. But when I do try to help the doctor do the job, do their job, um, and I able to be effective in that very short time I have with that patient, I can set that patient up in a better way and prepare that patient to see the doctor so they can receive the best care that they can that they can receive. Especially if that provider is on the few occasions I've had a Christian doctor, I've been able to tell the doctor a few things that is going on with the patient, and the doctor's been able to go in and probably be more effective for that patient and minister um, as a Christian physician. Uh, so uh, we want our clients, our patients, and our customers to leave blessed. And also we want our coworkers and our work environment and the people we work with to be blessed by our efforts as well. So uh, another, th uh, so we got uh, pre-evangelism through our deeds and we also want to build uh, relationship and opportunities with our, uh, with our coworkers. And there's some very practical things we can do here. Um, the side-by-side -side book is a very good start on how to have good conversations. Um, but Pastor Lee Ormiston, who's a pastor up in North, Northern Minneapolis, retired pastor up in North Minneapolis, used to teach a course on evangelism at uh, on my school. And he, he was very effective. He used to be a salesman. But he was a very effective, what, People refer to him as an evangelism, evangelism, evangelism machine. Excuse me. And he had a list of steps that he would work through. He he knew it was ineffective to just go up to someone and say, "Do you know? It's like where are you going to go when you die? Jesus died for your sins. Repent and believe." You know that was ineffective and unhelpful because no one knows what that means. But he would he would strike up a conversation. He would get to know the person. He's like, oh. Where do you work? What do you do? You start with work, and then he would start asking about their hobbies. What do you like to do for fun when you're not at work? It's like, oh, do you like to do that with your? Do you like to do that with your family? And he would start talking about their family. Do you have any siblings? Do you have any children? Do you have a wife? Do you have a husband? It was spouses, and then they would get more into his background and his family. It was like, oh, where are you from? Where did you grow up? What's your family? And then he would get down to the beliefs and maybe any spiritual background that he would have. So he would follow this very natural list and, and conversation of getting deeper and deeper and getting more uh, intimate and knowing that person through work, hobbies, family, background, beliefs. Um, and it was, it was a very effective way in which he was able to get to know people in a very efficient amount of time from riding on a from riding on the train to his flights to even past his pastoral ministry. So we can invite, we can go to work events and we can strike up conversations there. Uh, so it's, it's some, we can use those work events as opportunities to build relationship and 
build relationships and deepen our relationships with our coworkers and see and actually have time outside the office where normally would be where we'd be working. So we actually have un uninterrupted time to speak with our uh, coworkers. Uh, or we could invite them out to lunch or for lunch or if, on their lunch break if they have time and not doing anything and they're, they're willing. We can invite them out to lunch and just get to know them more and, and just have these na very natural, very deepening com uh, conversations with them. Uh, we can invite them over for dinner to our own home. As some of you may have heard of uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who is a former uh, uh, a lesbian professor at a high league college. She was an LGBTQ leader in, the, in that movement. Um, and it was her goal to try and make uh, gay marriage as uh, look, look as good and as complimentary as possible. It was her, her whole goal. But she had a neighbor who was, a pre I believe, a Presbyterian pastor, and he invited her over for dinner on multiple occasions. As she was doing research on the Bible and trying to tear it to shreds and, uh, and trying, uh, with her uh, professorate, and I believe it was English, uh, English literature, but, but for, that, for that community, for the LGBT community, hospitality is highly valued, is extremely important. And so when she was invited over for dinner, she was, she was, in, she was struck by the love and uh, the, the passion and the kindness that these Christians had. Um, There's even a point that through the meal that they, they prayed together and at the end that the family, that, the pastor brought the family together and they had family worship in their home and they sang psalms together and she was struck by the, the wording of the psalms and realized that, the, that these people that she considered, these, these people, that she had thought that these people hated her and they wanted to see her destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth. But after seeing their love and their compassion and their grace, she realized that they did, cannot consider, consider her as their enemy. But she was the one that considered them as her enemy and she was trying to wipe them out. So that really shifted some things for her and how she saw Christians and how she saw their worldview. And that was the beginning more of the beginning into her, her conversion. That was a really important moment, moment for her. Um, so hospitality is really important. A meeting, uh, meet, you can also meet outside of work in other ways, uh, and, uh, through either social activity or um, help providing aid and help and providing for the physical needs in any way that you can. If their family is struggling with sickness or illness, or if they need, uh, need help, transporting bushes that they're ripping out from their landscaping to the, to the dump and you happen to have a trailer or other things that, the ways you can help meet uh, their physical needs and, and, and being a good friend uh, can go a long way in to, um, to evangelizing their hearts and preparing their hearts to hear the gospel. Um, we can also invite them to church events. We have summer fest every summer. That would be a great opportunity for them to come see our church, see our people, and see the people that we have here and get to know us, and we get to know them better that way as well. All right. Running out of time here. Uh, the third part, and uh, this is all leads to the third part of evangelizing, which is verbal sharing. Now, uh, a this can be done in a couple different ways, depending on the situation that, and the the person that you're speaking to. Um, there, there is th this um, giving a personal, t one is a per giving a personal testimony. And this is t 
telling your personal experience, your subjective experience of Christ on how Christ has worked in your own life and how you've experienced him transforming your own life. And telling the story about what you were before you came to know Christ and how he has changed you. Uh, these can eat, so depending on the person you're talking to, you can either get, like, give the gospel first and then share your personal testimony or you can give the, your personal testimony first and, and the gospel. But both are needed. Uh, you're gonna probably give both at some point. But the objective truth of the gospel is necessary in order to have the subjective experience of Christ transforming our life. So we need both, and both are important in evangelizing, uh, depending on the, the person that we're speaking to. So uh, someone might come up and ask, and like, so what's your story? Where are you from? Uh, why are you a Christian? And then you launch into your personal testimony of, of how, what Christ has done for you personally. And other people might be like, Christianity is silly is like why do you believe why do you believe this silliness and then you would launch more into an objective defense uh, telling of the gospel and try to correct their incorrect views of what the uh, what the gospel and what Christianity is um, I have more on that but we have to move along here and in in that situation of when people ask about the, uh, the objective side of the gospel, there, there's an element of apologetics that has to be, that usually has to be done there. And sometimes we don't know all the answers. And it's okay to say, I don't know. It is okay to say, I don't know. We don't f need to feel like we have to know all the answers. Because none of us know everything, and it would be presumptuous of us, presumptuous of us to think that we do know everything. <laughs> I know I, there are times when I feel like I need to provide all the answers and have all the answers ready at hand all the time because we're supposed to be prepared to have an answer for everyone at all, at all times, right? That's what, that's what the scriptures teach us. But, but it's okay to say, I, I don't know. Um, I learned that from Dr. Bowder, a former president of our seminary. Uh, he, he, would, he, would, he would have a, a Q&A time and he's like, I'll have a Q&A time, but I am allowed to say, I don't know. And it's okay. <laughs> it's okay not to know. And if you don't know and someone has a question you don't know the answer to, um, you might say like, wow, that's a good question. It's like, I don't have a good answer for you right now, but I, I can do some research and see what I can find out. So how would you answer that question from, from your perspective? And then you, la you launch back into learning more about them and being curious about how they see the world and having them put the burden of, burden of proof on their worldview. So you understand them and you get to know them and you also get to start like questioning parts of their worldview and areas where, in, in that particular area and you put the burden of proof back on them. So the, the goal, again, is to grow the, and deepen the relationship. It's not to, uh, the goal is to grow and deepen the relationship. The goal is not to win the argument. The goal is not to, <laughs> is, is not to win the debate. So we wanna defend the gospel, we also want to grow in that relationship. So uh, we are out of time. Um, if you have any questions for me about what those books are, um, you can see me afterwards, and I could be, be happy to recommend uh, those books for you if you want to grow in your, uh, about how to evangelize, on how to evangelize your coworkers. Um, so, I think that's it, thank you.